You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Lily Houghton. Lily is a beautiful playwright. She also does writing for TV these days. We originally met when Lily was in high school through her father, Jim Houghton, who became the head of the Juilliard Drama Division when I was in school there, my second year in school there. He was also the founder and artistic director of Signature Theater here in New York, which is really special to me. Um, It's actually where I got my equity card right after school. So we've gone back a long way, and I'm just an enthusiastic fan of Lily as an artist and a woman I admire. I'm so grateful for her taking the time to share her experiences with creative life, growing up in a theater company, with grief and grieving, taking care of your mental health first in the arts, and really believing in your point of view. I'm very happy to share this conversation with you all. I hope you're taking care of yourselves in this long winter and that you enjoy the 171st episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? That's a tough one. I mean, obviously, it's the main one. Um, I kind of have a longer answer for that, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you and I know each other because of my dad. Um, mm-hmm. And just a little background there, my, my dad was in theater. My dad was at Juilliard and Leah was at Juilliard. Um, so I really grew up in theater. I grew up really immersed in it. And um, it was this wonderful, beautiful magical childhood. Um, but when my dad got sick and when my dad passed away, uh, and we can get more into this too, a lot of art and theater felt really, really dark to me. Um, being in a theater would the sometimes, yeah, well, just even walking into a theater after my dad died, like, would make me want to have a panic attack, which was a little awkward because I was incredibly blessed that before I graduated college, I signed professionally as a playwright. I like started a professional career in playwriting when I was like 20 or 21, which is insane. And I felt incredibly lucky for that. Um, But in a lot of ways, I was sacrificing my mental health by Mm -hmm. doing it. Um, So because of that timing. Yeah. I mean, my dad passed away August, 2016. I was about to be a senior in college. Um, I went back to school two weeks later. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And, um, I finished my degree, promised him I'd finish my degree. Um, and I signed for playwriting and all that stuff in May, 2017, like before I graduated. And I like, had a starry reading by that next September. Do you know what I mean? It was a really fast process. And it feels weird being like, oh, that was hard because that's beautiful and incredible. Um, but the long, the, the, this is a long-winded way to say the way that I stop myself from going in the dark place as an artist is uh, walking away sometimes. Um, I... I know I come from a really unique perspective in terms of I grew up in a very privileged 
way in terms of I had access to incredible artists, to a father who was running a theater company. Um, but I, after his death, there were a lot of things about that that became darker and um, became really triggering to me. And so part of the way that I stopped from going to, as you say, the dark place is by removing myself from the theater community sometimes and um, not making sure that my only friends are not just theater artists. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, for the first time dating someone in my life that isn't in theater (laughs) and didn't know my dad. Um, So I think it's that. And that was actually something that my dad instilled at me from a really young age. Um, It feels weird to say this and you probably kill me for saying this, but um, he's dead. So whatever. Um, He uh, didn't want me to go to conservatory at all. Mm -hmm. He was like, you will not be going to conservatory. You will be going to a liberal arts school. And he was sort of like the best artists, if you really want to be an artist, are the ones that have tons of different experiences. And I agree. I think it's the best advice he ever gave me, but it's just funny because he was running a conservatory program. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I, w- I was there as a grad student and I went to a liberal arts school right. for undergrad. And I, I was always amazed by the people who went there as undergrads because it really is so... It, it's amazing to me that they can handle it and knew they wanted it because it's such a tunnel. Yeah. And I didn't want to be an actor. Like I did. I mean, it's so funny, Frankie and you, I think you might've even too, but I remember specifically Frankie would came to like a school play of mine in high school and like saw my, my high school production of mock and all where I was like the mom because I wasn't that cute in high school. And the pretty <laughs> girls were like the, the main girl. And I was the mom in old lady makeup. Um, but there, there was really that community at Juilliard. Like I, this is sort of going off on another tangent, but there, there was this sort of family element with it. And something that was very major for my dad was that I have different experiences. Um, but something that was very major for me was, uh, realizing that I liked theater and I liked writing separate of my childhood. Right. So I wanted to go to, I went to Bennington, which is a really tiny liberal arts school, about 160 people in my year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's like under a thousand in the entire That's awesome. school. Um, it's all weird artsy people. Um, but I wanted to go to a place where no one knew. Yeah. And totally outside of the city since you grew up in Manhattan. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. I grew up, I mean, I'm talking to you from here right now. I grew up in a building called Manhattan Plaza on 43rd and 9th. Um, And the way I describe it is like growing up in a weird artist commune. Um, There's a preschool in the building. Like we all grew up together, all the kids. um, And it really does feel like, you know, I talked to my boyfriend about this a lot. He grew up on the Upper West Side. And he sort of says, I didn't really know my neighbors. It didn't really feel like a community besides who we went to school with. And it's just so funny because I had the exact opposite experience. Like our next door neighbor was a casting director. Um, my mom would be on an episode of Law and Order and like the person down the hall was playing the bad guy in her episode. You know what I mean? Like it was truly like everybody knew each other and all the kids knew each other. Um, and now that we're all grown up, we're all sort of doing different things, but it's it's kind of funny to see you know, like Timmy, I grew up with Timmy Chalamet. Like we all went to preschool together. He grew up in this building. He talked about Manhattan Plaza on SNL a couple of weeks ago. You know, I saw that and I thought <laughs> about you. I was like, I bet they know each other. <laughs> I do. But I mean, I don't know him in a way that like, you know, I know him in a way that I'll say hi to his mom in the elevator. Like I right, was never, right. su- I'm not trying to pull that. But, but I, like, I know that whoever grew up in that building. <laughs> it's just, it's very funny. It's very funny. And honestly, like I remember my dad coming home from the Lortel Awards mm-hmm. and it must have been like 2013. He was before he was six, so not 2014. But um, I must have still been in high school. And he was like, well, you like that kid, Timmy, from downstairs just won a Lortel. I think he's pretty good. I think he might be a good actor. <laughs> so I just, it's just funny. But um, yeah, I grew up where everybody knew my dad. 
everybody yeah. knew my entire family, not only in the building that I grew up in, but Signature is outside my window, you know? <laughs> um, so escaping that is really, really important. I think also I've been in therapy since I was eight years old. That's also mm-hmm. a helpful process. Um, I have, I was diagnosed with OCD when I was eight. I had pretty intensive OCD and I've worked on it and I'm in a good place, but um, yeah, taking mental breaks outside of the community that has seen me, like it, it, it like has seen me do the most embarrassing shit when I was 12 years old and then you're a professional in it. Right. It just fucks with you. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful in so many ways that you have yeah. these supportive people who have known you and known your family for so long. But I was curious about that, like how it's felt to try to establish yourself on your own professional track after that sort of childhood and these relationships that were already in your life. Yeah, it's weird. And, uh, you know, I... I I had a pretty crazy early 20s. I mean, I'm 26. I'm not. I'm, I'm my mid-20s now. <laughs> I'm 26. I'm not. Um, but my dad got sick when I was 19 and died when I was 21. And my mom was dealing with cancer for a couple of years, too, and is currently doing really well. But it's just there's just been a lot of um, sickness in my family, and there, there was a lot of events that happened. Um, but before all of that, when I was a teenager and I was going to college, I really was rebelling against, it feels so weird to say my family name. My dad was not like Tom Hanks, you know what I mean? And, and when I, <laughs> and but when it, I, it was a certain circle of New York like, theater, yeah. she's very, very well known. Yeah. But it's so funny though, because it's like, that's something that's really helpful for me is being outside of that circle. Um, like my boyfriend didn't know who the fuck he was, and that was fantastic for me. His parents were signature subscribers, <laughs> um, but when I knew that I wanted to go into this field, I was rebelling for a while. I almost applied to schools for theater under a different last name. I really was highly considering using my middle name, um, but then when he got sick, that all changed. Like when he got sick and we knew, I mean, I think he was pretty open with this. I I don't think it's that, you know, I I don't know. I think he was pretty open, but we knew he was going to die. There was no um, Mm -hmm. cure. And when that happened, I clung to my last name like no other um, because it feels like an extension of him. Grieving publicly at 21 and I was sort of, I write a lot about it, but I was put on all these stages. Um, Please forgive me too, because I don't know what memorials you were at or not, because I totally have blacked them out. No, it's fine. I think I was only (laughs) at the the Juilliard one. The Juilliard one, yeah. Um, Was just the most insane experience. And um, it, it felt really performative to me. And um, I felt like I had a duty to perform. And I've always felt like I had this daughter role to perform. Um, But that was hyper, a hyper version of that. So after that, I felt this need to make sure my dad wasn't forgotten. Um, But also try to be my, my own person at the same time. But yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to go into a room with people that knew you when you were five and um, will always view you as a child. But then I also feel guilt around it because I'm insanely privileged that I was Jim Houghton's daughter. Um, I'm also very privileged that my dad was a well-liked guy. (laughs) Um, You know, there's not that many men in power that are well-liked and are good people. Yeah. My dad... I believe is a genuinely good person. Um, But I don't know if you saw this after his death, but he was put on this like weird angel pedestal that is very bizarre when they're just like talking about your dad, who you know watching on the couch, like watching CNN and like 
sometimes being an asshole. And then all of a sudden, he's like the messiah of American theater. (laughs) So weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I was torn. I was torn and um, I uh, tried to find him everywhere. And I'm still trying. It's only been four years. I'm still trying to find him everywhere. Um, Quickly realized was not going to find him in theater. Um, That wasn't the right place to look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw I was doing my internet snooping on you. You'll <laughs> find your own website, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I saw you had linked on there that um, New York Times piece where you were sharing like the items from his office a couple years ago. Yeah. And I don't think I had seen it at the time. And it made me um, so happy to see it. <laughs> I was also just curious, yeah, like what your feelings are about, I think in the article you said that he was kind of a oddly nostalgic person. So like some of the things that he had kept, you just found it funny. Um, and I'm I'm the same way. And I've kept a lot of the things from like my grandparents and, you know, I hold on to every note that anyone has ever written me, stuff like that. I'm curious if you have any sort of fascination with like documentation or, um archives or I don't know how I feel about the word legacy but I'm sure you know losing a parent so young that has to be part of the grieving process oh yeah I mean that article it was me and Michael Paulson and I I'm actually so proud of that article because it was the only thing that I felt like I had control over um after my dad died, I won't go too detailed because it's just things of the past, but there were a lot of things that happened around me um, that were a lot of people doing things in my dad's name, but not with, um, not really reflecting on his family or like the way that we might feel. And there were a lot of things that were happening that were all in really good intent and beautiful and they're a lot of attention around him and I totally get it but I just sort of felt like I was showing up to other people's parties about him (laughs) Um, and I felt like I couldn't really find him anywhere Um, and that whole article came across because my dad left everything in his signature office to me Um, and a little background of this like I was my dad's child I mean you probably knew this with the amount that I was around Juilliard but he's, you know, he's the deepest love of my life. And, and I know that I will, there will be an element of that I will never have again. And that's okay. But we had such a deep, deep bond over theater. And like some of my best memories of him are when Signature was on 42nd and between 10th and 11th, mm-hmm. which you were there during or Orphan's yeah, Cycle. my first job after school. Oh my God. That was one of my favorite plays too. And I could tell some really embarrassing stories about that. But um, I would walk with him to the theater and he would ask for my notes after the shows. And we would like walk back and forth and just even the two avenue walk, that's where I feel him um, the most. So there was a reason why he left stuff at Signature to me specifically. Um, They put everything in a closet for me, which was really nice because I couldn't go through it, you know. And I eventually, on a break from school, I was still in college. This was my winter break. So a couple of months after my dad died, I went to the closet. And I just started going through shit. and was just blown away by what was in there. Um, there was like, Arthur Miller wrote children's books. Had no <laughs> idea about that. He'd signed one to me in Henry. Like, my dad held on to every piece of everything, which I'm sort of the same way. Like I'm super sentimental. I have, my dad used to write me letters every time I travel. Like even if I'd just gone on any plane, he would sneak a letter into my, um, I don't know, my luggage. And um, it's so funny. Cause like, I don't know how much of the side you guys saw of him, but he was extremely goofy and extremely sentimental. And one of the things I love the most is, he tried to start a little theater company in San Francisco right after he graduated college. Um, my dad really struggled in school. He was dyslexic. And um, so it took him a really long time. He went to a couple of community colleges. Him, his brother did a production of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. 
and he saved like the little set pieces from like God, the model. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's in there. So I sort of became fascinated with it, and I thought that these items that he had collected were so much more like reminiscent of him than any speech I could have made or um any any I don't know anything that anyone could do of him so I cold emailed Michael Paulson like literally from the New York Times website I found Michael Paulson's email I didn't go through signature I didn't go through I didn't go through anyone because I wanted it to be completely me this was like I I want to do something for my dad I I have these things I don't want to write something I don't want it to be about me I I want it to be representative of him and Michael got on the phone with me within two hours. He was talking to some college kid at Bennington. I was calling for my dorm room and was just so kind. And we worked on that article. We worked on that piece for five months. Oh, wow. He, yeah, it was not an overnight thing. I He invited me to the New York Times building. I brought like a tote bag of all the items I thought were the coolest, like Bill Irwin's clowning hats and like August Wilson's pen, like incredible shit. And he was like, yeah, there's some, there's something here. And it, but it was all about what I was comfortable with. And in the process of grief and in the public figureness of grief, not a lot of people stop to ask you what you're comfortable with. And he did. And yeah, we shot it at Signature. I had creative control over everything. He asked me about everything he printed. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of that. I'm gl- proud I got that out there. Um, it feels accurate. <laughs> it feels accurate. Yeah. But I, uh, in terms of collecting, I, before this all hit, um, you know, the current pandemic we're living in, mm-hmm. I was looking into archiving some of the stuff that's sitting in that closet and making it available to students because there is some stuff there yeah. that I think if you're a theater student, would be really incredible to see, like signed scripts and these sort of, it, it's kind of like a weird theater shrine museum in that closet. And I don't want it just sitting there. Um, so I was sort of in talks with, I'd actually talked to Juilliard a little bit. I talked to the the performing arts library a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, Cause I'd love for it to be a Juilliard, but I, I would like it to be available to all students, like the public, like anyone could come if they're interested right. in theater. So yeah yeah we'll see (laughs) we'll see after all of this but I I hope people are still I I don't know I just it feels weird just sitting in that closet but I'm 26 years old I don't want to be responsible for all these like incredible artifacts in my like Brooklyn apartment right well that's what I was gonna say is like of course they're still sitting in that closet where do you have space to keep these things in your home in New York City (laughs) yeah and like signature has been really sweet and they, they let me go there when, I, you know, it's like I went there on my 25th birthday to give myself something for my dad, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's important. It's important for me that those objects aren't with me every day. Mm-hmm. Um, again, sort of talking about the darkness, it's really easy for me to go to that place. And I keep certain things in my apartment. I have one shelf. That's my dad's shelf. And this sounds really creepy, but you knew him, so you, you'll kind of know this, but my dad was kind of famously wore New Balance sneakers everywhere. Um, so I have his New Balances, and I turn them into flower pots. So that's, that. my, that's my dad thing. <laughs> and that's on our shelf in our apartment. So yeah, yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can I ask you how you've been doing this year during the pandemic? How, you, how you've yeah. been handling it and how mm-hmm. you're feeling now? You know, it's weird. I've been talking to my a lot of my friends and my family and all that stuff. And everyone 
including me, has sort of felt like, weirdly, this has felt like one of the hardest months of it all. Um, January. Yeah. We, my mom, after my dad died, um, bought a place upstate. I think she was sort of torn about where she wanted to be. Um, We couldn't afford to ever buy in the city, but she bought a place upstate. Um, So when this all hit, my mom was going through treatments. So my main thing was we got to get her out of the city because she lives in Manhattan Plaza, which is a huge building with (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, And her immune system at that point was shot. It was shot. So my boyfriend, my mom, and my brother um, were in a cabin upstate for, I want to say like four or five months. Wow. Um, and oh, I'm so glad you had somewhere to go though. Already oh, set. yeah. Oh, I mean, we we're so lucky. So lucky. Um, and so privileged to be able to do that. And um, it was a really important experience for us. Um, I haven't my family never sort of became a unit again after my dad died. We never really had the time. Right. And you two weren't living at home anymore. And Right. I graduated. Yeah. And Henry has his own apartment and um, really gave us an opportunity to come together as a, as a family unit, which was really beautiful. It's really scary, obviously. Um, my boyfriend and I have been – we gave up our leases in Brooklyn and we've been living in – part of a house in Kingston, which has been kind of the most magical experience. It's super isolating and lonely sometimes. Um, but I needed to live somewhere. I've never lived anywhere besides New York City. And again, going back to the getting away from it, I think it was important for my own healing and grief process that I didn't live somewhere where I thought I would see my dad at every corner. Mm. Um, It felt like mine. I had no memories with him there. There is no theater in New York City that I don't have a memory with my dad at, including theaters where I've done plays (laughs) or have commissioned me or whatever. Um, So having a space that I could walk around town and not feel like I was going to run into my dad or someone that had a very intimate, beautiful memory of my dad father, which don't get me wrong. I do love sometimes, but I, it was a bit of a freeing experience. Um, I got really lucky and I've been working in television for the past two year and a half, year and a half. Oh, that's great. Um, so that's been sort of was my focus during quarantine. Um, I'm finding it really hard to write a play. Um, yeah, so it's okay. Yeah. That's great. And I'm so glad that you had some like an avenue for income during all of this too, the TV stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's on and off, you know, but um, TV sort of feels like this thing that you have to like break in and then you sort of get a bit of a flow mm-hmm. with it. Um and I, I had broken in in terms of, like, I had written my first pilot. And I, I sort of – I was really learning as I was going, but yeah. um, wasn't starting from complete scratch. So I kind of put all my energy there. That's um, But, yeah, it's been on and off. But um, – Yeah, I, I was lucky. curious if, if you'd been running into writer's block or not during this. Because in some ways, I feel like people, and obviously it's been going on for so long now, people have all gone through multiple phases of their, oh yeah, of their, um, how they're feeling and their productivity during the pandemic. And, um, you know, I feel like some people have been feeling like, oh, there's this time that I never had and I'm feeling so productive. And then other people, uh, which is where I was for a lot of it, like, I don't, I don't have the bandwidth to be productive or creative or I just can't um totally I'm curious about people's experiences and I'm also curious about like how this is kind of a separate idea but how we're going to remember this time how people are going to know the history books about like what was your experience what was my experience going through this for over a year yeah 
I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, I am not one of those people that was like, I wrote seven plays. I like, <laughs> no, I was focused. Honestly, the first couple of months were just like making sure my mom's health was okay. Mm-hmm. Like that was the main focus. And then once she was doing well, that was when I could finally sort of be like, what am I doing? Um, no, it's weird. I... I actually would not say I've been super creative, which I think people like people that are close to me would argue against because I've actually gotten a good amount done in terms of like I've done television pitches. Um, pitches are not super creative to me. It mm-hmm. almost feels like administrative work. <laughs> like I'm not sitting down and writing new weird scripts, which is what I would usually be doing is like writing weird scripts. Um, it's I'm not more like doing marketing. That. Yeah, it really does feel like, oh, I'm putting together this document so people can understand an idea that I have. And then eventually I would write that, which is what most of television is, which is so (laughs) bizarre to me. Um, So I have not written a play. I'm supposed to be writing a play. Um, I have not written it. (laughs) I don't That's a weird timeline too, because who knows... Yeah. The timeline has exploded. Who knows when you'd even be able to do the play? Totally. And I'd feel really weird. I don't know. I think I'd feel weird like sending into a theater company that's like had to let go of staff and everything and just being like, can someone read my play? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I don't. Um, I, at the beginning of quarantine, which was another sort of administrative thingy that I did, I teamed up with a couple of friends. Um, Matthew Menachino, who I don't know, but he's also a playwright. Yeah. He's incredible. And um, an actress, her name's Allie Stoner, and we created an Instagram account that we're not really doing anymore, but we're doing for the first, like, six months of quarantine really steadily called Theater Without Theater. So it was E-R-E versus E-R. Uh-huh. So it was, like, theater, but without the physical space. And we were giving artists an Instagram um, presence and pretty much just doing snippets and stuff of people doing art from quarantine and then also focusing on artists that had had plays that were canceled Mm -hmm. um, and giving them places to talk about that or do a snippet from it or whatever. And then that grew a bit of a following and that sort of became my full-time focus for like the first two months was I can do administrative stuff, you know, whenever. But, um, so that was great and that was beautiful. But then it just got to a point where the three – and we had, like, a stat, like, we had to, like – we had to get, like, interns. Like, it grew. But it just got to a place where I was, like – everyone just was, like, we are fucking in this for the long haul. Right. And we need to take care of ourselves and take care of larger issues and in the world right now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and focus on bigger picture things. And so, yeah, that was sort of how that started. (laughs) But no, I don't think I've been insanely creative. I don't think I've been super creative. I watch a lot of television. Can I I ask you kind of a more technical question while we're talking about pitches? How did you learn what you were doing in in that area? Are there any resources you would recommend to people who are interested in doing that? Ask your friends. I I think like 90% of how I learned it because I didn't have any formal education in television. Um, I never took a television class. Like I got my hands on pilots and just read a bunch of pilot scripts and then watched how it had transformed on screen. Mm. Um, And then also read pilot scripts that never made it. Um, I would say just getting your hands on as many scripts as possible and then I started reaching out to friends that had been in television um, and asking them if they would show me old pitches they had done. And literally just studying like the different ways that people would put together a doc. That's honestly how I did it. Awesome. I had no sort of um, training with that. It was really just being shocked that anyone even wanted to work with me and then figuring it out as I went truly good not good I don't know why I said good but (laughs) I mean it it harkens me actually like to see how many um 
how many playwrights work in television or like how many actors I know from Juilliard where we had very little on-camera training. Oh, yeah. And I still haven't done a lot of on-camera stuff. So I think part of my mind is like, oh, it's still so mysterious to me. But to see how many of my friends have been able to just learn on the job and just do it, you know? I'm like, okay, it's not that, it's not as complicated as I think it is. It's still the same thing. Yeah, it's so weird because I, listen, I still view theater, I still view theater as like the ultimate art form. And And I don't know if that's because I grew up in it and I think every part of it is magical. Um, it's so enmeshed in my childhood that it's like, you know, you you look back at your childhood and it's magic. And if your childhood was theater, then that that's going to feel magical. Um, but yeah, I think you learn as you go. The notes are a very different type of thing. <laughs> and it's weird to get notes on something that I haven't actually written the script for yet. But it's like the pitch of it. Hmm. I've had projects where I'll get notes on things. And it makes sense if I'm working closely with the producer or whatever, that we're collaborating on that. But it's just so different from theater where it's like, no one would, if I give you a pitch of a play, no artistic director would be like, yeah, I'm going to program that. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. With the, with uh, television, it's sort of the opposite. They program, program, I'm calling it programming, but they, they do that based off of an eight-page doc. And then they decide if they want the well, you to write a pilot. Wow. Which is so weird. It's so like not what well, That's I... another thing that like I picture, you know, with theater, you rehearse everything for so long. Yeah. And so that's the part that it's like, I just need to do it a couple of times and then I would know how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's I'm, I'm talking about it like I've never had any contact with TV and my husband has done a lot of it, but... I just. (laughs) I remember when he was on that show. I used to watch the show he was on when he first got. I remember when he was on Looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because my dad was so excited. Oh my god! Because my dad grew up in San Francisco. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I I got to live out there just for a couple months with him when the first season he shot it, and I was like, "Why would anyone leave?" Oh, my dad, like, whatever we would do, he'd be like, "It's better in San Francisco." Like, no matter what. (laughs) My dad's long-term dream was that he'd eventually retire. But my dad could not go like three weeks without starting another theater company. So his idea was that he was going to, we were going to move to California. We were going to move to like wine country outside of San Francisco. And he was going to open a theater, like an, a, an outdoor theater in like a vineyard. Well, let's, let's still do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was his long, and then he could go to San Francisco. That was his long-term um, goals. So yeah, he loved it. We love San Francisco for sure. Do you have any mentors that have been influential in your career, Um, obviously, besides from your dad? Yeah, tons. I mean, the first playwriting experience that felt like mine was at MCC Theater. They have this thing called the Youth Company, which is an Mm. incredible program. Um, and I had done like, they have like acting and playwriting and I'd done the acting lab. My friends were doing it. And then I was in the acting lab. You sort of write your own stuff. They do this show for the teenagers called Uncensored where they, teenagers like write monologues about their lives or whatever. And they put it all together. It's really, really beautiful. And the woman that runs that is this wonderful woman named Jen Shirley. She's an incredible, incredible educator. I think she actually does some stuff at Juilliard now. I think she's partially there now. Um, but she clocked my writing and she was like, Lily, you got to do the playwriting class. I was always scared of the playwriting class because the playwriting class looked really legit. <laughs> and I mean, I was a teenager, <laughs> but the playwriting class looked really legit. And then I did that and that was mentored by Lucy Thurber. Mm-hmm. And um, my first ever reading was with mentored by Lucy and was directed by her wife, Jenna Warsham. And that was like such a formative experience for me. So they, they truly like, I credit them for really me going into playwriting, honestly. And then, but and they're just wonderful people. But besides that, um, I truly say like every signature writer, <laughs> I, they not even if they don't know it, like even if, you know, ones that knew me as a child, but every, every snippet of a rehearsal I've ever seen, the, the fact that I got to see that was a mentorship. Um, so I would really say that, like, I really thank them. Um, 
I, I, I like there, I mean, there's specific ones I'd shout out. Um, but there's also, it feels weird to call them mentorships because it's not like I'm sending them my writing. Some of them know my writing, but mm-hmm. it's not like I'm sending them my writing. They've mentored me as a human and what it means to be a good artist and right. what it means to like also be a good person and be a good artist at the same time. Um, I don't think I would have truly, and this sounds kind of dark, but I don't think I maybe would have survived my dad's death without Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and Lila, um, Lila Neubauer. And they are, were such guiding forces for me and really fought for me as a person and taught me how to be a person again. Um, and that you can be an artist and you can also like take care of your mental health and like, (laughs) and it's not actually like poetic and cool to look sad all the time. Um, which was my main belief at the time. Um, I would also say people like Katori Hall, um, just her kindness, um, John Guare, his kindness. And then he passed quite a while ago. Oh, Annie Baker too. But um, I haven't seen her in quite a bit. But when my dad died, she was really there, really there for my family and for me specifically. Um, but I would say Horton Foote, <laughs> um, which is funny because I, I mean, I met you at Juilliard, but I really got to know you during Orphan's Home Cycle, mm-hmm. which was one of my favorite experiences of all time because it was such a large cast and my dad had to be there all the time. And um I was named after Horton's wife, Lillian. Um, you know, when you emailed me, your full name showed up on your email address. And I was like, I don't know if I realized yeah. that was your full name. And I was like, I'm sure she was named after somebody. Oh, yeah. Well, I was partially named after Lillian Hellman and partially after Lillian. But my parents met, and this is gross, my parents met it doing Little Foxes. And they were playing brother and sister, which is like <laughs> gross. Um, but... I think that was part of it. And then Lillian Horton's wife had just passed a couple months, a couple months or a year before um, I was born. And I was also born during the Horton foot season, which is how uh, my family tells time. (laughs) (laughs) Henry's born during the Edward Albee season. My mom found out that she was pregnant with me in Edward Albee's bathroom. I mean, there's just like all these very weird. <laughs> um, you know, I was really, really happy that I got to be involved with that production and that it was still oh, in the old space, even yes. though as an understudy, that was kind of torture because there wasn't room for us <laughs> backstage. So we literally sat on the floor of the lobby every day. I remember. Like, I'd sit with you sometimes. But part of me was jealous that I didn't get to do it in the new space, but I was happy it was in the old space because I had had friends from Evansville who had interned at Signature like for years and I kept just hearing, it was like, because I was from the Midwest, I'd never really spent time in New York. It was like the first theater that I kept hearing about that was this home for people that I knew. And so it was one of the first theaters I had seen shows at when I came to the city. And so to have have that experience in that space was really, really special. That space, I have not been back to since the day it stopped being signature. Some other theater was there for, I don't know if I've been it back either. It was Pearl, which right. unfortunately closed. And then it was UCB, which oh. I don't think is coming back either. But um, yeah, the I've last- never been back either. I just have to, that to me is signature. And that to me is like what I associate my childhood with is that like, I mean, you did a play in that space. That space is not big. That space is like, <laughs> it's beautiful no. and it's cute and it, and it feels cozy, but it's not like a fancy theater. <laughs> um, and it's so weird to me that signature is now this like fancy space um, because I think about it as a black box. Um, and all of my childhood memories are being backstage at that space and like walking to the different dressing rooms. And there's like three people in like a box pretty much Mm -hmm. for their dressing room. And that to me is what I thought the magic of theater is. The fanciness is all great and good. And I'm glad that that space is there. And I hope that it serves the community. I hope that it continues to do what it's doing, but the mission of signature is truly in the old space. And um, yeah, the, the last show there was this Tony Kushner play called The Illusion mm-hmm. um, with, I, I don't know if you know about my obsession with Lois Smith. 
I've, my I cat is named too. after her. <laughs> that was um, a great production. That was one of my all-time favorite productions at Signature. And there's a whole speech in it about the magic of theater mm-hmm. that Lois sort of plays this kind of like witchy character. And she does this like beautiful speech. And Christine Jones, who is like my aunt, um, was the set designer. And uh, there was a jar of tears that she holds in it. It's like a jar and it just has little crystals in it. And I remember that was the final thing I saw in that space. And I would watch it and it was just so beautiful. I started sobbing. I was like 15 and I was really dramatic all the time. And um, my dad gave me the jar of tears. (laughs) Um, So I have the jar of tears. But I asked Lois. Lois performed that monologue at my dad's memorial. Um, so it's really full circle. Lois and Ruben, Ruben Santiago Hudson read it out loud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that old space was magic, man. That production of Orphan's Home Cycle was so magical. I was like 15, 16. I mean, I was so happy. I got, I mean, I got to listen to it at least, if not watch it every day. So cool. It's kind of crazy they made that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So many people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. We've been talking for a while. We'll have to wrap up soon, but I do want to ask you as a playwright a little bit about um, what you find valuable and what you find challenging in like the developmental process as a playwright. Because I know so many of the resources that are out there are for developing your work, not necessarily producing your work. And I'm always curious as like how you can use that system to your advantage or if it ever weighs you down, you feel like? It's a really good question. Oh, God. And it's weird because I probably would have had a different answer a year ago when I had just done three workshops and I was like, just produce it. Yeah, now it's like if someone gave me a, a in-person, if we were in a different world, right? And it was like an in-person workshop, I would be like, oh, my God, that's incredible. <laughs> like, um. No, I think it's I I honestly I have a huge amount of imposter syndrome and everything I do it's something I work on but um I feel incredibly lucky for the developmental process. I've also worked with some incredible directors. Um the last workshop I did before it all shut down was with Danya Tamor um mm-hmm. at the Atlantic and um it's a secret play that I can't talk too much about, but okay. it's a it's about grief. It's about um, growing up in theater, and it's <laughs> it's my dad play, um, and it takes place in a theater. And so it's it's uh, what I, what I'll say about it is it's the closing of an old play, and it's taking down the set mm-hmm. of an old play. So it's it's we're in a theater and we're taking apart a set slowly. Um, Anyway, so it, it takes place in a theater. So it's something that would need to be do, done in a theater. <laughs> um, but that, to me, was one of the most magical workshops I've ever experienced. Um, not only because Danya is an incredible, incredible genius and um, is so loving and has also really been a mentor to me and really um, just really just incredible and understands my voice so well. Um but there's a God Mike voice. There's a lot, there's a whole part of the play that's over God Mike. And you'll enjoy this. <laughs> I um, we got Richard Feldman to come out of retirement for it. <laughs> because it's kind of my dad, but it's not. Mm. And I asked him to do it. And he did it for me and Danya. Um, so that was incredible to be in a rehearsal. Listeners, that was our acting teacher at Juilliard. Who was oh, like, yes. Sorry. Richard <laughs> Feldman. And, yeah. And was sort of like, you know, and so, and it was so funny. Like he started doing things that like, he was like, I have to show up. As, I guess he like told you guys a million times, you have to be at least 10 minutes early. Like whatever. I'm, I I never really looked in at Juilliard stuff. Um, so I don't know exactly what to tell you guys, but he was very, um, <laughs> very stressed out that he was doing everything that he had told his students. Do you know what I mean? Because he hadn't done it in so long. And then there's, uh, I mean, we had an incredible cast. Um, but just to go back to Juilliard, uh, Kate Wilson's daughter, Mabel, um, was also in it. 
and there's a she kind of plays a little version of not really a version of me but there's elements of it and that was one of the most healing beautiful experiences of my life um it's an incredibly personal piece that I don't even know the world will ever see but it's it was that was an experience with development that I was like oh my god I can't believe I did this (laughs) I can't believe I got to be in this room and that these artists wanted to work with me and then I've had other plays that have maybe had, you know, the main play that got me signed was this play called Dear that has been done at colleges. That, you know, it, it's been it's been workshopped like crazy. And I have had other plays that have been workshopped like crazy too, but that that was um one that has definitely been workshopped since I was 21. Mm. And I'm just sort of like, I don't want to write it anymore. <laughs> it's what it I wrote it it's about college girls I wrote it when I was in college I don't want to muddy the waters of it um but no I I wish that there was more bravery in giving the green light to things I do also understand probably somewhat deeper in my bones what this the artistic and administrative systems of a theater are but I don't know, man. Yeah, like give artists the green light. Like take some weird chances. The subscriber system is so outdated. Um, and making decisions based on subscribers is never going to lead to the most interesting stories. Um, but I understand it. I understand it. I understand that we're in a, you know, I wrote, <laughs> I joined the letter writing campaign a couple days ago, I sent a letter to Biden, you know, he'll never read it. But um, also, I signed my dad's name. And that was something that was one of the first things besides honestly, that article with Michael that I felt, oh, my God, like, he would want me to do this. This feels like really him talking about bringing back like the theater, like the theater reserve programs that FDR brought in and like actually giving funding Mm -hmm. so that this industry doesn't die. Um, so I understand theater's fears about programming and not making money, but it's just a, it's just a broken system. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's scary. I also have a weird voice. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm really, I'm really, um, the best kind in the theater. Yeah. I'm very, I'm really hyper femme. And like, I like to write characters that are hyper femme and that, don't aren't apologetic for it and like maybe in other like movies or plays would have been written off as stupid because of the way they speak um yeah so I'm really interested in that and then also just like I think there's a deep deep sexism and grieving and Mm. that's something that I for sure experienced um I felt a lot of violence and anger when I was grieving but I also sort of felt like okay, we'll shut up about it and, like, get in a cocktail dress and, like, stare out the window and, like, watch the rain fall. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, not the most universal things, but stuff I'm interested in. No, but those, it's those p- specific things that we all want to watch at the theater and that what, you know, the cliche saying about that's what makes them universal is that they're so specific. It's true. Yeah. If you do feel yourself going to that dark place or, like, feeling uninspired are there any tangible things that you go back to again and again like books that you reread or music you listen to it's kind of touchstones um you know it's weird because like the first thing that comes up when you say that which is maybe not the answer like it's not a, a tangible thing is the uh, therapeutic techniques that I was taught to deal with my OCD at a young age um And I mean, OCD is different for everybody, but mine was really like a broken record player. Like I lived in a constant fear of anxiety. uh, I mean, a constant fear of just everything going wrong. Um, And, you know, like I was in fifth grade and I got asked to go home from school because I wouldn't stop asking class members if they were mad at me. Like Mm. my parents literally had to pick me up from school because I went around the classroom and I asked every single classmate if they were mad at me three times because that was the pattern I had to do it in. And one of the ways that I was taught to deal with OCD 
was at the end of the day, you can't indulge in your anxieties until the last 10 minutes. You, you, you schedule, like, I mean, you literally schedule into your calendar at seven to seven ten. I'm going to think all of my anxiety thoughts. I'm going to speak about them. I'm going to indulge in them. I'm going to sit in them. But when those 10 minutes are up, I can't go there anymore. So, and, or I write them down. I write, I keep writing them down until they look like mush, which makes me look like an insane person if you ever found my notebook. But that is sort of the tangible stuff that I go to when I feel myself going to a dark place because my dark place with as an artist and my dark place as somebody with mental illness are one and the same. Right. Um, so yeah, I go to those 10 minutes. I am. Uh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to try it. Is it a therapeutic technique? I've been doing it since I was nine years old. It's really important. And I, and I've done it with friends too. Like if you have somebody, I mean like Frankie, like if, if I'm having a really bad OCD episode, I'll go to Jack, who's my boyfriend, my boyfriend's name, and I'll say, the at 7 to 7.10, I need to be able to tell you all the crazy things I'm thinking. And you just have to say, you just have to listen to it. <laughs> and then I will, and then I, you can't let me ask you again, because that's, mm. but you have to stick to the schedule or else it doesn't work. All right. Okay. <laughs> I've been, I've been having so much anxiety this year during the pandemic. It's just been getting really intense. So I'm yeah. always looking for new ways <laughs> to deal with Try it. Try it. And I think a lot of pandemic anxiety, from what I understand, is similar to what people with OCD were living with beforehand, of the sort of obsessive thoughts and cleanliness and all of that stuff. So it would probably work for pandemic type anxiety as well. <laughs> like I feel like it's similar zones. And then the last question is, is there any um, piece of art of any medium that you've taken in lately that you want to recommend? Like a TV show, a book, anything? Oh. You know, I take in a lot of stuff right now that isn't art because the only way that I can silence my brain sometimes is by watching reality television. Um, I've been watching the early 2000s versions or like version, the early seasons of like Real Housewives. So that helps me on an honest note. But I'm going to butcher the title. I hope I don't. Um, in and of itself, in and of itself. It's a documentary. Wait, I'm going to actually look it up one sec. Yes, in and of itself. It's on Hulu. Okay. And it's like an ampersand and. Um, it's a documentary on Hulu. And it was produced by Colbert. And it was a it was a theater piece. It was a theater piece down downtown for like three years. And I don't want to say too much about it because it's partially a magic show. But okay. I have never in my life seen a piece of taped theater that made me feel like I was in a theater. And this made me feel like I was in a theater. Like I fully was on the edge of my seat for a lot of it. Okay. Um, it's a lot about identity. I'll say that. I don't want to say much else because it'll it'll okay. ruin it. Oh, I'm excited to watch it. I haven't but heard of that. It feels like theater. <laughs> they did such a good job. Um, so that was something that made me hopeful. That's a yeah. great way to end this. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. Anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.